This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, COVID-19 restrictions are lifting. Canadians are beginning to travel. There is a new option for travelers to not only get around Ontario, maybe start to get around Canada, maybe North America. Porter Airlines CEO Michael DeLuce joins us to chat about why they're expanding their fleet, buying up to 80 jets, and prepping to fly across the world. A massive earthquake struck off the coast of Alaska this week. John J. Clegg, professor with the Department of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University and an expert in all things earthquakes, explains how tsunamis from Alaska impact Canada and the rest of the world. Are you okay with gas stations? Question mark. Or getting catfished? Question mark. <laughs> you know why that's funny. I'm sorry. I started laughing. I'm sorry. Well, you know why that's funny. It's for the first time ever. We have discovered a new place. That's a typo. For really bad typos. (laughs) (sighs) Ryan wrote that. I just copied and pasted. Yeah, is that what it was? Are you okay? Are you okay with gas stations? Yeah. I love random gas stations on long road trips across the country. I love gas station coffee. Mm -hmm. There is something special about it. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I don't know. There's just, uh, there is something special about a road trip gas station. I don't know. There's this one. Oh, what's the name of this town? It's just outside of Prince George. Starts with a B. Oh, it's going to bother me. Anyway, this town is so tiny. But there's this gas station that every time I've ever gone to Prince George to visit family there, I've, we've always driven through there. It's like part of the trip. It's the yeah, best. Yeah. One of my actual absolute favorites is I-80 in Iowa. There's a huge, it's called the world's biggest truck stop. Um, it's a great, uh, it's a great stop. Just uh, don't go to the bathroom. I wouldn't recommend Yeah. That. Some of those are nasty. Um but then some of them are remarkably clean. I mean, you, you can tell why some of the real driving people stop there and some of them. That's for sure. Although did I, I was in Golden, BC once and we left our buddy Jamie behind. We were on our way to go houseboating and he was in one car and then we were dri- literally driving away across the Trans-Canada and said, do you have Jamie? No. Do you have Jamie? Well, where's Jamie? And so we actually left him in Golden oh, oh. at the Husky, if you know the, if you know the stop. Uh, are you okay with this gas station? One station in, you guessed it, our favorite place for are you okay? Florida. Straight 772. 772. Woo. Sebastian, Florida. Oh, Florida, we love you. It's facing some, uh, this gas station is facing some insane backlash after the store was spotted selling face masks with Nazi swastikas on them. Oh my. Kelly Wagner told Local 10 she was shocked to see the masks for sale behind the counter. I asked the woman behind the counter if she is, is Shell actually selling swastika face masks, and she outright said yes. The masks were for sale at the Shell at the corner of Powerline and Cypress Creek Road. We didn't believe it was true until we actually showed up and bought it. We then went back in to confront those who work here. Do you know what this symbol is? Yes, I do, but I just work here. The clerk points to the manager. Somebody in management thought it was a good idea to sell a mask with a swastika on it? I have no idea. Do you have any idea what this symbol is? No. You don't know what a swastika is? No, I have no idea. Trust me, I have no idea. Nazi Germany killing the Jews? No. Okay, well, um, clearly, uh, that guy has no idea. That's, that. Why didn't he just say, leave me alone, man, at that point? <laughs> I think he's already in hot water, so he might as well answer the questions. The owner told Local 10 that he bought the masks from a small vendor who showed up at the gas station with an assortment of masks for sale. Shell Oil Company, who is the station, sent the following statement to Local 10 News. While the name on the sign reflects the brand of the motor fuel being sold on the premises, the convenience store and the day-to-day operations are the legal responsibility of the wholesaler, site owner, and or operator. But to credit the reporter, uh, he ended the story in a fantastic way. The good news, we bought the last mask here. And in a few minutes, 
it'll be thrown in the trash. In Fort Lauderdale, Jeff Wines here, Local 10 News. Yeah, that's probably all right. Heck yeah. Get it, George. Get it, George. Are you okay? Are you okay with catfish? Yummy. Like a pan-fried Louisiana catfish? Oh, you can't go wrong with a Louisiana catfish. I love it. Blackened, I'm not too, to like do, a rub? I'm not allowed to do accents anymore after last night, Ryan's dad said. <laughs> That's because my dad's French-Canadian. Yeah. No, <laughs> French accents. It's just the French accents. You could do other ones, just the French ones. Really? Okay. I, I got in trouble from Ryan's dad because of my French accent yesterday, so I'm not doing any more accents. <laughs> I feel like I got grounded, got my Lego taken away. Yeah, um, it's tough. Been there. Okay, well let's let's expand. Let's expand this. Are you okay? Let's grab that one more time. We got to expand on it. Not with catfish. Are you okay with getting catfished? Ooh, no. Is that where like, it's just, they like pretend to be someone else to get like images of you? Yeah, no. oh, or money and stuff like okay, that. Yeah. yeah, no, I wouldn't be. Or, or love. I wouldn't be Ooh. okay with that. Well, maybe love. <laughs> Someone's trying to get the love. <laughs> Brandon's like, I'd give it up. Yeah. That's cool. As long as they went home and I could sleep in my new bed by myself. By myself. Okay. Yes. Catfishing is a deceptive activity where a person creates a fictional persona or fake identity on a social network or online or email or whatever, usually targeting a specific victim. Trap. The most bizarre instance of cash fishing we have ever seen just happened to a guy in the UK. This story is amazing. Ryan found it. Wow. The guy found out that his online girlfriend for uh, for eight months, they were chatting online. How you doing? It's nice to meet you. You're amazing. Was actually his roommate. Ooh, that's awkward. Okay. Mario. I'm waiting for Ryan to do the Mario. Mario. Uh, an American living in the UK met, quote, Hannah on a dating app and quickly felt an amazing spark. Eight months, online girlfriend. But things got a little bit fishy. Whenever Mario asked Hannah to call him on the phone, she'd give him some excuse that they couldn't talk. And despite the fact that she claimed to live in London, she refused to actually meet up with him. Wait a second. So Mario. Mario. Called in the team from MTV's Catfish UK to try to get to the bottom of the story because they'll investigate. So the hosts, hosts. You're doing so good. Wow. (laughs) That's a typo. The hosts tried to debunk the photos using a reverse image search. Okay, let's have a look at the pictures that Mario sent us over. Why would you take a picture with a red telephone box if you lived in London? This is weird, isn't it? You know, you do that if you're visiting, like, it's a bit strange, isn't it? A tiny bit. See what happens. Nothing at all. Okay. The next one... I'd be shocked if this showed anything. Nah, yeah. nothing. They all look like really normal pictures. Apart from... The headshot? Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's give that one a try. That's another woman. This is someone in New Zealand, a dance and arts therapy person in New Zealand. So they're investigating the photos. They find out that that's not actually the person. Hannah was not Hannah. According to Lad Bible, they arranged to meet in a park where it was revealed that Hannah was actually Mario's housemate, according to partner and former business friend with benefits, Courtney. Okay, I got that tone all wrong, so I'm going to do it again. Yeah, what so they the found heck? out that <laughs> I didn't even write. <laughs> That's not a typo. That's just Shane's no. brain having nope. a bit of a typo. Yeah, come on, brain, don't fail me now. Hannah was actually Mario's roommate, his business partner, and former friend with benefits named Courtney. How's that for complicated? Okay, so the story goes on. They've known each other for almost five years now. I wanted to see what it was like to be his girlfriend because I am desperately in love with him, oh. his roommate said. Oh, oh that's awful. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch, ouch, ouch. So for eight months, his roommate, Courtney, pretended to be this fake person, Hannah, online. They used to have a friends with benefits. 
thing going on. She fell in love with him, didn't tell him, and pretended to be somebody else so they could date online. Sadly, it wasn't to be Mario. Mario. Explaining that he loved Courtney like family, but wasn't oh. introduced in, in a relationship. Oh, oh. oh. This, is this is weird. I mean, they had the friends with benefits thing. Why, why didn't she just say, hey, let's go back to that instead of this whole alter ego online thing? Well, there must have been something said, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Well, but maybe a month. If you if you did this for a month, right, and said, hey, this was actually me the whole time. I wasn't being honest. I really apologize. Can we please go on a date? That was probably her best shot. But eight months? This poor dude. Oh. Yeah, but if he wants, if he really likes this bird and he's like, she's amazing, I'm assuming he's probably telling his roommate, like you said to me, Ryan, earlier today, he's probably going to his roommate saying, oh, I met this girl named Hannah. She's so amazing. We've been online dating or whatever for eight months. Or he's telling somebody. And, but if, so if he's so into her that he wants to meet up, what's the big deal at that point? Okay, so deception and lying. That's probably something you should talk about. But aside from that, I mean, you already like the person so much so that you have an emotional connection with them and you like her enough to kick a barrel. Oh, it's got to be something crazy here. I don't know. Probably some weird vibes. I, I, I'm calling a red flag. I, I think Mario made the right decision here. Really? I don't think it's Mario Definitely. that's the problem. I don't think so. I, just, I don't know. I can't believe the dramatic music on that Catfish Hunter show. That's crazy. It's a whole <laughs> show. It, it's actually really interesting. I watched a couple episodes. It's neat. Really? Yeah. Huh. Sounds very um like Spooky Hunters kind of thing. You know what I mean? I don't know. I feel it was a little bit like um, Maury. <laughs> like, you are not the not girlfriend. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> are you okay? Are you okay with taking a bath? I'm more of a shower person. I tried a bath, oh, I don't know, it was like six months ago now. But uh, yeah. I didn't How'd like it. Nah, you just lay there. I don't like it. It's just more I of a shower. Yeah. It's not Bats safe. Are, are not it it has to be like a jet tub. I ha like just sitting in a in a tub of silent water that's not really? moving is kind of peaceful for maybe like ten minutes. But if there's some bubbles going on, or if I turn it into a bubble bath, that <laughs> is absolutely a okay with me. Uh, I imagine Ryan have a little Lego characters in the tub going, oh, you're going to drown. Yeah. <laughs> um, although when I used to have a hot tub and outside, and I used to go into it all the time and never turn the jets on. So because the best part was just soaking in the water. Anyway, um, keeping clean is, you know, somewhat of a priority for most people. But it seems even the most famous of celebrities can be a little hesitant to keep the stink away. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, Kunis shower their kids, but showering with soap and water, not so much, and neither do the parents. Um, which is funny after that 70s show, because they were boyfriend and girlfriend on that 70s show, the fact that they're parents now. That's weird. The pair appeared on an uh, episode of Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert podcast, and for some reason they started talking about bathing. Here's more from People magazine. I didn't have hot water growing up as a child, so I didn't shower very much anyway. Okay, but okay. when I had children, I also didn't wash them every day. Like, I wasn't the mm. parent that bathed my newborns ever. Now, here's the thing. If you can see the dirt on them, clean them. Yeah. Otherwise, there's no point. And as for their own showering habits, Kunis and Kutcher both said they refrain from using soap on their entire bodies every day, but agree on the importance of regularly washing their faces. I will say, when I work out, I have a tendency to throw some water on my face after a workout just to get all the salts and the whatever. I wash twice a day. Yeah, you gotta yeah. wash your face. I don't know, guys. I don't know if you need to wash your face. Dax, that's too much. That's too much. You wash yeah. your face. Well, the American Academy of Dermatology Association recommends that children's age 6 to 11 bathe at least once a week. Daily showers should begin when puberty does. Kucher and Kunis's, uh, Kunis, Kunis, daughter, Kunis. Wyatt is six. Their son, Dimitri, is four. And um, that was a lot of information right there. I know a lot of people who don't do the deodorant thing. I mean, there's all kinds yep. of chemistry and, and, you know, sensitive area. So I kind of get that. And I get the some of the commercial soaps versus natural soaps. 
There's a lot going on there. I've been buying uh, way toned down soap. Um, you know, those big bars of the custom yeah. stuff. Natural stuff is amazing. I started buying soap made by the honey store in my local area. They make their own honey and or honey and soap in house, and it's awesome. Mm. It smells way better than the you know mm-hmm. body wash scam. stuff. Yeah. The the bees are making the honey. They're just packaging it. Right, that's true. They're doing all the hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, it's a uh, bee labor. No. I got natural body wash that I like, and I finally found natural deodorant. I and all like Does it work? work yeah all regular deodorant used to you know make me uncomfortable and sometimes even like i don't know make it like crack and scratch and mm-hmm. weird things yep. um totally. so i finally found uh, i tried various natural deodorant over the years and it would like fail after an hour and you know it felt like it made me stinkier most of the time yeah uh exactly. but i finally found a good uh it's like charcoal deodorant that finally oh, yeah. works all day I've heard of that stuff. Yeah, the charcoal stuff. And the uh but for me the shampoo, I'm like, what's the point in using the shampoo? Your hair's oily by noon. Like some of those more natural shampoos. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have that problem. You don't have that problem. Um we do. Although I gotta say that, you know, we we do have to evaluate the chemicals you put on your body. I mean, I think that's what that's it. You point you talk about healthy decisions and changing your life. That would be a good place to start. That's for sure. All right. Uh, it's, uh, that's the end of Are You Okay? Cause we're out of time and we're rambling on about our armpits. Ah, I'm mailing in Friday. This is the Shift Podcast. About 16 months ago, there's an awful lot of emails went out to staff saying, Hey, by the way, things are going to change and we have no idea when we can bring you back. One of those companies that had to do exactly that was Porter Airlines. Porter Airlines is a is a, a unique situation because of the fact that well I'm curious to ask these questions Porter has has never really done things traditionally and we've seen this before with other airlines in Canada not you know not very many I mean WestJet took that same sort of spin we're just not going to do it the same way as the other people what it seems to have created for Porter and for the others is um opportunity which is cool and then covid comes so joining me now to get into conversation is uh, Michael Deleuze. He's with Porter Airlines. He's the boss. And Michael, so let's just recap quickly before we get into sort of the story of Porter and what's coming. Um, 16 months ago, you guys locked the doors. You had to. Yeah, that's right, Shane. Thanks for having me on tonight. It, uh, you know, it was um, a very difficult uh, time. Things happened very quickly. Uh, there was not great information available. Uh, but it became very clear as we sort of approached the middle part of March of 2020 uh, that our only real option was to suspend operations, having you know, flown continuously for almost 15 years up until that point. And so, you know, from a you know a company perspective, we had to uh, you know, temporarily suspend operations. At that point in time, we thought it was going to be two or three months. Uh, we temporarily laid off uh, 1,300 out of 1,500 team members. Uh, so it was a very difficult time. And, and since then, obviously, we've rolled our extension uh, several times. Uh, and, uh, you know, here we are 16 months later. It, uh, you know, it really is uh, remarkable. But you know, we have recently announced that September 8th, uh, Porter will return to the skies. Uh, that is a firm uh, and final date. And, uh we have already started the recall process of uh, uh, many of our team members. And so we're extremely excited. The entire team is excited uh, to uh, get back in the air and start serving our customers again. I've flown recently. Getting through the airport is difficult to say uh, the least these days. There's an awful lot of new people. There's just new staff members there. You know, I mean, these are some of the restart things that are not easy must be difficult um, for you guys because it was a, a full stop. I mean, as the CEO, how hard is it to figure out how to get through this and how hard is it to get started again? It must be, uh, it must be a lot. It is and it is to restart. Uh, that is for sure. Having said that, had active plan, uh, plans in place for, uh, 16 months on on how to do it, and uh, we have uh, recalled team members. We've kept in constant communication with our team over the last 16 months. Extremely high participation rates. Uh, 
you know, on you know, biweekly team meetings, monthly CEO forums. Uh, we have had uh, in some groups over 90% of our pre-pandemic staff joining these uh, regular updates. So people are excited to get back. Uh, and, uh, you know, we filled our recall process extremely quickly. And so now over the next uh, six weeks, there's an intensive uh, return of uh, service training. Uh, the aircraft have been kept in impeccable shape over the last 60 months. We actually took the opportunity, knowing that you would not be able to operate for an extended period of time, to completely revitalize our aircraft. So we have done a full refurbishment, top to bottom of the aircraft, brand new seat, brand new carpet, sidewalls, overhead bins, even the lavatories have been redone, and external paints. And when we return to the skies on September 8th, we'll be with a, effectively a brand new fleet of aircraft. And so you know, uh, Porter customers are going to love what they see when they return uh, in September. The history of Porter is a great one in that, you know, starting going after Billy Bishop and then, you know, flying out of downtown Toronto. That, that's an exciting new approach to, you know, to reinventing the way people traveled for work and got in and around Ontario. Now, through the course of all of the different roadblocks, man, adversity has been sort of in the DNA of Porter to try to get through because there was the bridge thing and then there's, you know, the new, the ferry thing. And then there's the expansion of, of the Island thing and all these different things that have gone on as Porter has tried to grow and do things differently. Adversity has been there all along roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Now here you are coming out of COVID another giant roadblock. Do you look backwards on it now and go, we really were best prepared for this because of all the various things we've had to go through. Yeah, we've certainly faced uh, lots of challenges over the last 15 years, including the, the many items you just uh, walked through. I don't think anybody prepares for COVID. Uh, we acted quickly uh, and uh, you know have uh, remained patient uh, for the last 16 months, but it's not something you prepare for. But what we are very prepared for is the return of the business this September uh, and bringing back not only you know, all the team members that have been temporarily laid off, but as well, you know, interacting again with our passengers and, and you know, serving our passengers and doing things differently. Obviously, we did things differently 15 years ago when we launched service at a Billy Bishop Toronto City Area being an airport you know, that had long been overlooked. Uh, but in addition to that, it's more than just uh, the Billy Bishop location. From a service perspective, we really want to do things differently, really herald back to the, the golden age of travel, you know, serving beer and wine, complimentary and glassware, premium snacks. These are things that aren't available and weren't available 15 years ago and remain unavailable other than with Porter. And so, you know, it is a different level of service approach and uh, it's something that, uh, you know, is part of our DNA. Well, what's next? I mean, you've set yourself apart uh, for people in Western Canada might be familiar with the name or not really what the, the, the kind of service you get with Porter. But at the same time, it sounds like people are going to become a little bit more familiar with Porter. What do you guys have up your sleeve? So over the last uh, eight uh, months, we have finalized uh, growth plans and announced those two weeks ago. Uh, where we'll be taking the Porter product and, and everything that people in Eastern Canada you know, have loved about it. And, and Porter is the third largest scheduled carrier uh, in Canada, but obviously has no presence in the West, uh, West Coast or Western Canada. We fly as west as Thunder Bay. Uh, we have purchased uh, up to 80 E195, E2 Embraer jet aircraft. They have fantastic range. Uh, they're extremely comfortable, two-by-two two seating throughout, no middle seats, large windows, overhead bins, mood lighting. And we're now going to take the Porter product that has differentiated us for the last 15 years. And we're going to be uh, flying coast-to-coast, uh, -coast, Canada and the U.S., uh, U.S. sun destinations, and we can operate as far as Mexico and the Caribbean. And so... You'll be seeing a lot of Porter planes starting mid-2022 operating into Western Canada, from Eastern Canada, uh, and uh, as well other destinations in the U.S., Mexico, and the Caribbean. So you know, we're extremely excited to have taken those steps. The pandemic has really shifted the competitive landscape, we think, and, and it positions Porter well for five years from now, three years from now, two years from now, as we roll out these expansion plans. And 
I think, you know, from a consumer perspective, you're going to have more choice, but hopefully we'll as well elevate service within the industry, which in some areas has been, you know, lacking. And, and certainly that is our objective to bring it back. Well, I mean, so many different uh, groups have been cutting back, cutting back, cutting back to have somebody who uh, seems to be dedicated to doing it. Um, I would say properly. That's just my words. That's exciting to me. So, Michael, you got to explain this to me. So in the pandemic, you're sitting in front of your CFO and your CFO is going through all the numbers about, okay, well, this is how many people we can have and this is how long we can go and this is what we can afford for rentals and maintenance on aircraft. And they're going over the ledger. And then you're, you say this, okay, I have an idea. Let's buy 80 jets. Like, what did the look on your CFO's face look like in that very moment? Please describe it. First of all, my, my CFO is uh, a very nice guy. And so it's not the evil look that you're portraying it to potentially be. <laughs> he uh, understood it very quickly. He understood that uh, competitive landscape would shift, that the Porter product in Eastern Canada has the highest customer satisfaction rating out of any airline, bar none. Our product is different and we do things differently. And really this is about expanding and complementing what we're doing today out of Billy Bishop and really offering flights across North America. Uh, we think that uh, it is the right time. It is timed around mid 2022. We're taking our first 30 aircraft in a little more than 12 months. Uh, and uh, we're taking two to three aircraft a month. So it's going to be very quick. And by 2023, there'll be a very different Canadian aviation landscape for many Canadians. And you know, our, our goal is to elevate service uh, and deliver you know, a reasonably priced product for our customers. And, and that's uh, you know, what uh, people should expect. So is this different for you guys? Because your family, I mean... I, I, did you even grow up anywhere other than an airport hangar? <laughs> like, I mean, your family's been all aviation your whole life. Um, everybody, you know, from your dad and siblings and stuff like that. So, you know, is it just different in the way that you're able to approach this versus when it's just an executive sitting in an office running numbers? It, it, like, we often hear about, you know, hockey players where there's a little bit of uh, lineage or heritage or pedigree inside hockey players. You know, is it is it kind of like that? Because you guys have been so deeply embedded in aviation for so long. It just, could you even imagine not being in aviation at this point? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, we definitely, uh, Duluth's family has a long history in aviation. My grandfather, my father, all my uncles, uh, uh, siblings, uh, it is something that uh, we've been actively involved in. Um, having said that, Porter is not family business. It's one that, you know, we have incredible talent from across uh, many industry experts. And so the one thing we all share in common is we're entrepreneurial um, and uh, want to, you know, change the way things are done. It's not just status quo. And so I think there is an exciting atmosphere at Porter of trying to do things differently. I don't think all airline experiences have to be bad airline experiences. Uh, and that's what people got used to. It was difficult to travel. Porter tried to change that. We have not always uh, been perfect, uh, but we try to do our best uh, every day and make that customer experience different. And, and we are extremely excited about uh, you know 2022 and onwards as we expand across the country. And we're going to offer incredibly different service level at a you know very competitive price. Uh, and uh, I think we'll carve out a decent uh, market share with that approach. I'm excited for you. I think it's really great. When you look at uh, that map, that new map, that got a lot bigger, by the way, the Porter map gets a lot bigger in the next, uh, you know, dozen months here. Is there one place that you're particularly excited about the most? I, I don't know if there's one particular place. I think we're excited to be able to, you know, offer service coast to coast, Canada and the U.S., you know, Mexico and the Caribbean. And, and there are a lot of great destinations for people to see. And, and we hope to make uh, travel to those places uh, easier and, and look forward to it. It's okay. They're not listening. Like we can say that. Like I would say Atlanta. Like for me, I think Atlanta is terribly underserved. <laughs> um, like you're not going to offend Washington, D.C., you know, if we say Orlando or something. <laughs> we love all destinations, uh, Shade. <laughs> That's why you're the CEO. Oh, man, it's a good answer. Well, Michael, good luck. I, You know, you have a friend in us here. We like to um, 
we like to share Canadian business. We like to share for uh, we call our the audience. It's community. Our communities shift heads. Uh, with the shift show. So we, um, you know, we'd like to make sure that our Canadians know that you know, opportunity is there. And I think at a time like this, Michael, when we look at businesses and politics and all the things that are going on in the world, people tend to get so frustrated and don't realize that there are many great organizations working hard to make life in Canada better. And so celebrating this storyline is, is a great one. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Shane. And and uh, just like to say your show and the format and your approach is is wonderful and uh, certainly doing things differently as well. And thanks for having me on here uh, today. It's the Shift Podcast. In the middle of the night last night, we got notified that there was an earthquake in Alaska, a biggie. At the time, it was estimated to be an 8.2 magnitude earthquake. In the middle of the night, it's actually hard to reach out to science people. Apparently, they sleep at normal times of day. Here we are about half a day later. And um, well, I guess it's a full day at this point. And and I, I thought we would just ask some questions. There was an awful lot of people like, oh, no, what does the tsunami mean? Why does the tsunami happen here? What, what does the earthquake mean? How bad is it? So we just thought we'd reach out, get a little bit of expert insight like we do. John Clegg is with Department of Earth Sciences, Simon Fraser University. Uh, John, thanks for being here. How big was that uh, rocker last night? Well, it, it was a big one. Um, typically, we get one of about that size, one somewhere on the planet every year. So it was big. And in fact, it's the largest one in Alaska since uh, the 1964 Good Friday earthquake. Um, now that goes back a ways, but that was an over, over a magnitude nine earthquake. And yeah. Part of Alaska, uh, the southern coast along the Aleutian Trench is notorious for big earthquakes. So it, it isn't terribly surprising. They, you know, the, the good thing about it is almost nobody lives there. Okay, so it was a big one last night, and typically you see the aftershocks or earthquakes in other parts of the world, that happy reminder that this whole ecosystem we live on is very connected. Have we seen anything since, or is there any anticipation of what might be coming next in the, in the shifting of the tectonics? Well, uh, this area is, uh, as I said, notorious for big earthquakes. Um, and after this event, which occurred last night, there have been a number of big aftershocks, um, nowhere near the size of the the main shock, which was a magnitude 8.2. And we don't really see a connection between even a big earthquake like that and a distant location. So um, it's not likely to have any impact on an area like uh, the British Columbia coast, which, of course, is where, where we worry in one of the areas we worry about in Canada. Do you worry more about earthquakes after this or do the tsunamis which what which i mean obviously there's a bit of a priority to the big wave when this all happens but really what is the biggest concern well for these offshore earthquakes like this one was you know that occur beneath the seafloor um they can trigger uh, large tsunamis and um we've seen you know over the past 20 years or so huge loss of life from tsunamis triggered by offshore earthquakes uh Examples being in the Indian Ocean back around 2004, it killed quarter million people. You know, the earthquake claimed a lot of lives, but the tsunami was really the uh, the backbreaker in that one. And then more recently, we had a big earthquake in Japan, and the tsunami, which was monumental, you know, one of the largest tsunamis that we've ever ever seen on the planet, uh, killed about 20,000 people. Doesn't mean that um, all earthquakes trigger tsunamis. They have to be a certain type. And they have to be offshore beneath the ocean floor because what happens is when the plates shift um, offshore, often the plate, the seafloor will move up or down. And that kind of like a piston that sets in motion these these waves that ultimately wash up on the shoreline around the planet. Um, So, you know, we really worry about both. Um, And onshore earthquakes do not trigger tsunamis, but of course, the shaking um, which is the uh, kind of iconic expression of an earthquake, is what causes damage and loss of life. In the, I remember it was, I think it was the Phuket one where it, they, the, the, the graphics anyway to animate was basically like this, this chunk of the earth basically had plummeted yeah. and created this sort of suction of, of the water. But that water moves so fast. There was a, there was a graphic that was posted last night right after it happened. It was sort of like a, 
kind of a crescent radius from Alaska down on on a timeline. Hawaii had really the only tsunami watch that was released right away. And nowhere else that I saw really did. But it, it, it looked like it was about six or eight hours away all the way from Alaska to Hawaii. That seems fast. It is fast. You know, in the open ocean, in deep water where they really travel fastest, they travel about the same speed as a jet airline. Really? So, you know, like up to 800 kilometers an hour. Um, you know, in the case of, say, a tsunami from Alaska reaching the B.C. coast, you are talking about hours. Um, so you do have some time to react to the possibility that our coast could be hit by a distant tsunami. Um, and as they these water, as the tsunami comes into shallower water, um, it slows down. It kind of slows down and the waves bulk up. And uh, then the water just kind of rushes ashore. It's very much unlike a normal storm wave. You know, people kind of, when they look at an oncoming tsunami on a beach, they don't realize they're toast um, because they think of it as just another storm-driven wave. Mm -hmm. It's actually packing a huge punch. uh, And the water can uh, kind of move inland up slopes to fairly high elevations, sometimes 40 or 50 meters, you know, approaching 200 feet mm-hmm. in some cases. And uh, very, very damaging. There, I have so many questions. The uh, So I had always understood it that sort of, now uh, forgive my lack of science here in proper terminology, but this will probably work well for the people like me who are not science people. The, like from a molecular level, sort of the elasticity and compressibility of water is is quite good in that, um, it bends and moves. And my understanding was that tsunami wave really creates this compression of energy that really rockets through the water, but you might not be able to see it like a traditional wave, um, even though that energy's there and that energy shock, sort, shock is moving through the water. When it gets to the land or shallower water or a channel, there's got nowhere to go now. So it really starts to grow and snowball. Very not scientific, but is the premise close? Yeah, that's pretty well it. You know, we think of uh, tsunamis as like waveforms, you know, um, speech. We're talking, um, although we're not sitting face to face, but if we were, the air is the medium that transmits the energy that we hear, sound energy. And water is the same thing. It, it's basically the medium through which energy is transferred. And what's the energy? The energy is the kind of displacement of the water column. Um, so, a good example would be if you throw a stone into water, you know, you see the waves move away uh, kind of in a radial fashion. And uh, they're actually propagating energy. So, you know, at the edge of a pond where you throw a stone in it, the water will rush ashore. So the energy is basically being carried and then transmitted onto the shoreline. And that's what it is. You know, it's kind of a form of, uh, it's a wave form like sound or light. It's just that kind of unusual in that water is the medium for transmitting that energy. But it is true, you've got all that energy embedded in the water column in these waves. And when the water gets shallow or you approach a inlet or an embayment, uh, the energy can be bulked up and transmitted onshore. Why was it that their Hawaii uh, put up the flag right away and then took it down within about half an hour and nobody else really seemed to other than in Alaska? Is Was it proximity? Was it directional? Was it geographical in the location? What caused that? The location, um, they have a history of being clobbered by tsunamis, um, distant tsunamis. There was a big earthquake in Chile in 1960. It's the largest earthquake we've ever experienced on the planet, magnitude 9.5. And now Hawaii is something like, I'm going to say maybe 10,000 kilometers away from Chile. People died in the tsunami when it reached Hawaii. And uh, people have been killed by Alaskan tsunamis in, in Hawaii and uh, on a couple of occasions. So they have this sensitivity, I guess you'd say, towards tsunamis. And also the tsunami warning station was set up in Honolulu um, because of the loss of life during earlier earlier tragedies, earlier events. So they, you know, they, they typically take it a little more seriously than other folks do. Having said that, there were warnings that went out along our north coast. I know people in uh, Kitimat, for example, uh, which is uh, at the head of an inlet, 
uh, on the north coast were evacuated or told to evacuate. Now, that was called off fairly quickly because they realized, although a magnitude 8 earthquake is a big, big baby, um, you know, it didn't actually displace enough of the seafloor to produce a very large tsunami. There was a local tsunami on the Aleutian Islands, but not one large enough to really worry about at distances of, you know, Hawaii or the north coast of British Columbia. If that had been an even bigger earthquake, you know, a magnitude 9 earthquake, there would have been a lot of people moving out from all around the North Pacific Ocean, the higher ground. It's amazing. So what about Japan and all those islands on that end of the Pacific Rim? Does that, you know, was that just too far away? Or again, was that just an, sort of, I think of it like an airplane, because I, 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 I've spent some time studying aviation, right? So I think of like angle of attack, right? I think of yeah. the, in Japan and down there, they're on that sort of uh, Korea, they're on that sort of goofy angle uh, from there. And it, well, that's right. And typically Alaskan events don't cause loss of life in Japan just because the orientation of the coastline there, it's, it's kind of funky relative to the way the, the uh, tsunamis would travel away from the source in, in Alaska. Um, you know, we worry, these are distant tsunamis, and in terms of the Canadian coastline, we worry more about our locally spawned tsunamis because we get earthquakes that big. You know, uh, they're very rare. They don't occur, you know, kind of like within an average person's life lifetime, but they do occur. We, we've seen the, uh, the geologic evidence for these events, and, um, you know, they're, they're more of a concern because you get very little warning time. You know, the tsunami is generated by earthquakes directly off the British Columbia coast, the Washington coast. And uh, you have about 30 minutes, say, to Tofino or some of the other Vancouver Island communities to essentially get to higher ground, much less warning time. Whereas these distant Alaskan tsunamis you have, you know, on, depending upon where you are, many hours of lead time. That, that's kind of the big difference. And of course, you know, when we're talking about a magnitude eight or a magnitude nine earthquake off our coast, we also have to worry about the shaking as well. Um, so they, they've had protocols in place now for dealing with these distant tsunamis. Um, Sometimes, you know, they, in past events, they had these kind of warnings haven't been very effective. People are resistant to kind of a be, abiding by, you know, kind of announcements at 12 o'clock at night to evacuate their homes. Um, but they're better than they were before. You know, at least there is a warning that's going out that a tsunami might be approaching. And as that tsunami moves away from the source, you know, it's, it becomes easier to determine how, how big it's going to be when it reaches a particular point. So there's a continual kind of upgrade in the communication. Kind of, it's like weather. You know, you, you're better able to predict mm -hmm. what's going to happen the closer you get to to the actual weather unfolding. Yeah. So when was the last big tsunami uh, West Coast or in Canada? Was it the 60s in Port Alberni or has there been something else? Right. That was 64. And uh, that was also an Alaskan earthquake, um, similar in kind of its genesis to the one that occurred yesterday, but way bigger. You know, it was a magnitude 9.3 earthquake. And, uh, you know, you, the, this kind of magnitude scale is, is a bit deceptive to the average person because it's not a what we call a linear scale. You know, if you go from 8 to 9, you're actually producing 30 times the energy that the earthquake releases. So it's a much, much bigger earthquake. And they're very rare. You know, I said an, a magnitude 8 earthquake might occur somewhere on Earth once every year. Magnitude nines are about, you know, average once every 10 years or 15 years, somewhere on Earth. Um, Alaska is one place you can get them, and you had one in 1964. And it uh, caused a lot of damage, particularly in Port Alberni, which is at the head of an inlet on Vancouver Island. And to a lesser extent in Pacific Rim National Park, what was not then a national park, but the communities of Tofino, Euclid, Port uh, Renfrew, those exposed on the outer coast were also damaged. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of can have damage from these distant earthquakes, but you have to have earthquakes up there at the kind of high end of the range of possible magnitudes before they become dangerous. With lots of family in Port Alberni, the, the stories of that 
um, that tsunami was basically, they would say it was the only time we ever saw the bottom of the inlet because all the water kind of got sucked out, right? And then you yeah. saw all the junk on the bottom and then all of a sudden the water came crashing back in. That must be pretty yeah. scary. Do we see the, um, is this an East Coast problem too? Because we only seem to talk about it on the West Coast. Yeah, well, you know, it's a bit ironic because uh, really the uh, Atlantic coastline is the only place we've had large loss of life from a tsunami. And it was uh, what I would call a rogue event. It was uh, totally unexpected. It was a, um, a very large earthquake beneath the Grand Banks off Newfoundland that occurred, I'm trying to remember when it occurred now, 1929. Um, so better part of 100 years ago. And uh, the earthquake was big. It was a magnitude 7 plus earthquake. And it triggered a massive, massive submarine landslide um, that has been very well documented. And the landslide itself, not the earthquake, but the landslide displaced the seafloor enough that it triggered a tsunami. And the tsunami backed up across what is known as the Buren, Buren Peninsula, which is kind of extends out from Newfoundland and onto the Grand Banks. And uh, into the and this tsunami entered the outports on that peninsula. Imagine this in 1929. You're talking about a, an era distant from the past, you know, and people had no idea it happened at night and uh, they had run-ups of up to almost 10 meters in some of these outports, and it claimed about 30 lives, something like that. So, you know, although we worry more about tsunamis on the West Coast, you know, it's, it's possible, very, very rare, that you can get something like that happening on, on the Atlantic coast, say, off, uh, off Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. Is it possible? I mean, you've got Hudson's Bay, you've got the Great Lakes. Are they big enough and deep enough? Could it actually happen in a lake? In a lake? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's probably unlikely that you're going to get an earthquake doing that. But if you get one of these big landslides on the floor of the lake, um, it can sometimes produce and uh, release enough energy to create a, uh, uh, an in-lake tsunami. I don't think we've experienced that in Canada, say, in, uh, in one of the Great Lakes, but it, it's possible. And I do know some examples where um, landslides have entered lakes. You know, there are landslides on land that have plunged into lakes or inlets and have produced uh, damaging tsunamis. There was one in Kitimat in 1975 that occurred off the front of the Kitimat River um, that produced a nine-meter tsunami in Kitimat. Really? And it didn't kill anyone. It's miraculous it didn't, but it caused a lot of damage to the port infrastructure at the mouth of the Kitimat River. So, you know, you can also get tsunamis triggered by landslides both on land and on a lake floor or the seafloor. And that's another thing we worry about. And kind of the, uh, the Newfoundland example is a, is a classic example of kind of a, a cascading effect where an earthquake actually causes a landslide that in turn triggers a tsunami. Mm -hmm. I don't like to dig into prognosticating too much because, you know, that's exactly what it is. But I feel like I would lose my uh, my radio guy card if I didn't ask about the big one. And but my question about the big one is going to be different. It's going to be, um, you know, after an event like this happens, does it, like this is a big event, does it cause a big reevaluation about, you know, does everyone sort of tap in and go, you know, hey, John, what's the status where you are? Like, I mean, does, does everyone have to stop, reset, and go, hey, what's happening? Yeah, well, there is definitely a little bit about that. Every time we get a small earthquake out here, people kind of feel like, well, does that mean we're closer to the big one? Um, and you can, you know, we know enough to know that the big one is inevitable, and we have some idea on its likely uh, probability. It's not as good as weather forecasting, but we can put some probabilistic estimates on when the next one might be. And I should say, we do know that the last one occurred in AD 1700. There's fantastic uh, indigenous accounts of this tsunami. You know, it was really devastating on the west coast of Vancouver Island. It occurred in 1700. We also know from our geologic evidence that these, these babies occur about once every four to 500 years. So, you know, we're getting closer to the next one. It's been 321 years since the last one. Um, and they don't occur necessarily kind of every four to 500 years. 
but that's a good kind of ballpark estimate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of my reaction when we do get an earthquake is, you know, it doesn't mean the next one's around the corner, but on the other hand, we definitely have to at least prepare uh, our cities, our infrastructure for the inevitability of a big Give or take a week, right? A couple hundred years, give or take a week. <laughs> well, governments are doing something. You know, they're, I have to give governments some credit because we're gradually hardening our infrastructure. You know, we're retrofitting um, uh, critical infrastructure like hospitals and bridges. Um, what I think is a problem is the average person, having never experienced a damaging earthquake in Vancouver, tends to dismiss it as an issue. And, you know, I kind of have a little bit of empathy for that, having been through this pandemic. Everybody's been through this pandemic. What are your chances of dying from COVID versus your chances of dying from an earthquake? Right. Apples and oranges. But, you know, from a point of view of the damage it could do to a big city like Vancouver, it is something we we have to deal with and have to worry about. Maybe not on the individual basis quite so much as on the collective societal basis, I think. Well, it's interesting too. That's a good perspective. I mean, you often we often didn't really think about it, and then you look at it from this perspective of what we've gone through here in the last year and a half, yeah. and you go, "Oh yeah, okay. Well, we can probably apply yeah. this to a lot more things than viruses and so much too." It's it's fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. And um, you know, I don't don't want to encourage people to get neurotic about earthquakes, but on the other hand, I would encourage them to support government ef- efforts to ensure that you know vancouver can recover as quickly as possible should we have one Hmm. in the likelihood in the event that we do have Uh, that's great thank you very much for the help and the insight uh john clegg is with department of earth sciences simon fraser university and um uh remarkable insight thanks for jumping on with us so quick here i appreciate it i hope i didn't sound too nervous no man we love the nerdy here john it's great Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.